0: Well as we look to this text the question before us as I said last week and it is very much still the same question because we're still in the same text is to what extent is the word of God normative to what extent is the word of God binding for us are we as Christians to affirm the word of God in its entirety from genesis to revelation and say it is holy and inspired every iota every letter every every point or can we dismiss certain aspects of it as irrelevant to us can we say that some things were just meant for the time where they uh, where they were written they're no longer uh, applicable for us can we play fast and loose with the word of God? I think that is the question that we I was hoping we'd consider last week but that today we should consider as we meditate upon this passage. And again four points this sounds like deja vu but it's not. We first have a command, secondly a diso- the disobedience, thirdly Saul's excuses, and fourthly and lastly the punishment. So as we dealt with this last week i'm not even going to touch it if it bothers you the the harshness of the punishment of the lord upon the amalekites go back and listen to the sermon but the the command was clear saul was to go and do war and wage war against the amalekites and utterly completely destroy them samuel who had been missing or or out of view uh, from the in the last two chapters he now comes to saul and gives him this last opportunity to obey he urges him to take heed to listen intently to what god is about to say to him and he gives him the command And the question, and we know the answer because we've read the passage before, but the question is, will Saul or will will he not obey the voice of God? But before we go there, and I should have mentioned this last week, it would be a a wonderful place to have finished the sermon if I had the the capacity to to have understood it like that. Let's look at verse 6. Because as Saul goes, he goes quickly, there is yet another people group. It wasn't just the Amalekites that God hadn't forgotten, is it? God never forgets, and that is good news, and that is bad news, depending on which side of God you are, depending if you are in Christ or not. We are told that there is this people group called the Kenites, that mercy was extended to them, and they were spared from this utter destruction. Because they were mingled there with the Amalekites in this city. But there was this remembering of the goodness that they had done to the children of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And it, I think the contrast is there for us to note. One is the harshness and the wickedness that one people group had done to the Israelites in the wilderness and they got judged. And the other was the kindness, the love and the mercy that they showed. And God did not forget and they get spared, rewarded now, you might be asking, what, what episode is this? And we're, we don't have a record of this episode. We don't have a biblical account of this mercy. But there is maybe a, a, a hint in the biblical text of, of something that might be related to this. When the Amalekites came, and it's recorded for us in Exodus, uh, came and attacked the Israelites from the rear, there was a Kenite, knight, Moses' father-in-law, that came and brought comfort and consolation and helped the Israelites at this difficult time. He came and met Moses after the attack. And he came to comfort and bless God's people. And that's perhaps the, the mercy of the Kenites, or perhaps it's some other episode. But the, the contrast and the parallel in this case is, is significant. On one side, God never forgets the evil, on the other, God never forgets the good. God sees all, and God rewards all according to their works. But that being said, as we've seen, Samuel was quick to obey, and that is good. But there is a big stain in this otherwise white cloth of obedience. Otherwise uh, on this otherwise immaculate cloth of obedience that Saul uh, has. And this stain is so big that it's not really white anymore. Saul's victory is reported. He defeated them. But then it says that Saul captured the Amalekite king Agag. And that he kept them alive in direct contradiction to God's command. A direct disobedience to what God had given them to do. The purpose of this war is not to gain bounty or or loot or or to to have uh, spoils of war. It was to utterly destroy them, to completely eradicate the Amalekites. And Saul was careless. He showed no regard, no respect for the word of God. He thought he knew better. God said one thing, but he thought, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. Saul interprets God's command his own way. Isn't that the problem with most of us when we fall uh, disobediently, when we stumble into disobedience with regards to God's word? We interpret scripture the way we really want it to, to say whether it be with women, in uh, elders whether it be with uh, sexual immorality whether it be with other things, we interpret Scripture as we would rather it would have said it. And this is always the root of the problem with disobedience, with willful disobedience when we know what God has commanded and yet we persist We think it not to be a great thing. It's just a small thing, we say. It's just a, a, it's not really a a primary issue. It's just a secondary thing, a tertiary issue. It doesn't really affect anyone else. It's just between me and and God. Why are you so concerned about this? Brethren, let, let me not mince my words here. For God... Partial obedience is total disobedience. Let me say it again. For God, partial obedience is complete disobedience. There is no two ways about it. Obeying God in as far as it meets my expectations and my needs, obeying God in as far as I'm willing to obey, it's not real obedience. Obeying God in as far as... It's my, in my good pleasure to do it, uh, uh, and as far as convenient to me, when it, only when it suits me, it is not obedience at all. It is to obey our own will. We've just we just put God there while it it suits us, and as soon as our will is uh, contrary to God's will, we remove God and we go our own way. in god's view not to complete a command it is the same as not doing it it is rebellion and as i said we too have a a, a command to wrestle to to war and to, uh, to wage war paul in ephesians as we will eventually get there as he gets to that part of spiritual warfare he says we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. We too have the same divine injunction, this in our case, not in, against uh, uh, men, our fellow men, but against, against the principalities, against the powers of the air, against our own selves actually as well. To the Colossians, Paul says to mortify the members of your flesh which are upon the earth, to kill sin. Isn't that a very apt uh, application of this text? Saul was told to wage war to the death with all of it. We are told to wage war to the death with all of sin in our members. And how often, how often, like Saul, we, we just live that one precious pet sin, untouched, unbothered. When Paul speaks to the Colossians, we, you don't need to turn there, but I'll read for you. He then goes on and gives a, 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 an extensive list, or, or somewhat extensive list. The list could be much greater. But he gives a list of some of those things. Fornication uncleanness passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry because of these things he says the wrath of god is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them paul gives this list it's it's as if paul is that executioner calling upon the names of those that are on death row fornication to utterly be destroyed uncleanness sentenced to death and for us none of us is bothered by these ones are we these are vile and despisable sins fornication and cleanness evil desire covetousness we all say amen kill those ones there are some other kinds of sins aren't there let's be honest there are other kinds of things that we don't like to put off Paul continues, he says, anger, wrath, malice. Do you you ever get angry? Do you know you get angry and you really don't want to mortify that sin because it's the way I am? Blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds, Paul says. We will not speak a word in defense of these things. But yet, when it comes to our own pet sins, forgetting the name that the Puritans used to call it, but the, those ingrained sins, those pet sins that we have, we realize that there are good things, or what we would consider good things as well, that are sinful. What do I mean? I'm thinking of those words that Paul mentions. are rubbish those good things that he learned to consider rubbish those sinful attitudes and that sinful pride in those uh, character traits that he has a Jew of Jews uh, uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin those good things that he then goes on to say you know what they are really they're dung in light of what Christ is those good things for us are sort of like Amalek was for Saul. Was those good things that you spare? Those good things that you don't really handle because they're good. They're good. Never mind what God said. How often these good things of the flesh, like Paul speaks of, instead of being judged according to the divine sentence and and being put to death, how often we spare them? how often we are not prepared to count them just quite yet as dung, as rubbish. The reality for Saul's disobedience is that he spared an Amalekite and later on, the story is a little bit convoluted. I've been having this argument with Peter over the last couple of weeks. Um, how exactly did Saul die? Because on, on, at the end we'll get there and we'll uh, you will find out then but at the end of one samuel uh basically saul uh, suicides himself he is uh, you know the story he throws himself into a spear but then at the beginning of two samuel here shows up another amalekite a young amalekite who comes to david and reports that uh, saul is dead and he claims that's the argument is he just claiming uh, something that he didn't do or did he do it he claims that he was the one that killed uh, Saul. Regardless of that discussion now, how did Saul really die? This Amalekite was able to claim that he killed Saul. And in many ways, perhaps he did. I'm convinced he did. Isn't that an apt illustration for the end of those things that we spare? Spare sin in your life. And as the Puritan John Owen said, Be killing sin, otherwise sin will be killing you. Spare sin, and sin will, sin will be your undoing. I'm not, it, it, it is not that it can be your undoing, sin will be your undoing. Spare the flesh spare the sin in your life and it will grow it might be a tiny shoot at the beginning but eventually it grows out and it it, it branches out and it, then it develops thorns and it it stings at you and it holds you down and in the end like a, a, vo- a venomous poisonous snake it will sting and sink its fangs upon you and hold you down and this applies to our life individually since we have been so focused on church life and on congregational life in the morning, let me make an application to congregational life, allow the world just a little bit of entryway into the church in spite of what God has commanded to do to keep the world outside to make this church Not the building, but to make the church a holy place. Allow the world a way in. And you have failed to keep the whole of the command. To not be conformed to this world. but To be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And isn't that the problem? and the beginning of the death of many local churches, the world comes in. It's allowed within the precinct of the church. And all of a sudden, the church is perishing by the hands of that which they refuse to part with. And the disobedience of Saul is of such gravity that we see there in the language that is used of God. Mark the gravity of the language. Very few times in scripture It is said that God repented. Very few times in scripture we read such emotional language being applied to God. And this word is crucial for us to understand in this chapter. And if you allow me five minutes, I'll just explain why. Because two times we're told that God repented. And two times we are told that God does not repent I know you're probably reading from the New King James and I'd love otherwise the New King James but I, I must say whoever uh, was in the board of translating the New King James in this case uh, they made a mess in this chapter the same word is used in chapter 11 uh, in chapter 15 verse 11 in verse 35 and then in verse 29 it's the same word in the in the four instances where it says that God does not Uh, does not repent twice and it says that god does repent in this case the av is better translated Uh, Uh, surprise it is about the repentance of god so what do we make of this does god repent does god not repent is there uh, an inconsistency on the part of the author that in the same chapter he says that god repented and then he says that god did not repent Brothers and sisters, I believe that there is a great comfort for us to draw from this passage. Yes, God is not like man. He does not repent. Yes, God is not like man. He does not change uh, his uh, disposition uh, inwardly like men. I might want to do something, but then something happens, and I change my attitude, and I uh, and uh, and I change my outlook. I, my love diminishes or grows, but that's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is one that is uh, greater, and outside of creation, He is an impossible God, as the the, the theologians would say. He is a God that suffers no passions, and that is a great comfort for us. That God is impassable means that God is not going to be swayed, that God is independent of everything else. His will is accomplished and His will remains. That's how God does not repent, as an impassable independent God. So what do we make of the part, the part where it says that God repents? As many theologians have pointed out and they are right, this language is anthropomorphic it is a language that is meant to convey to us the significance of, of a change, uh, um, of a change in, in circumstances, and, and favour on the part of God. What do I mean? God does not change affectionately. He does not repent affectionately, like we repent, emotionally, with passions but God repents in actions or is said to repent in actions to convey that he that a shift has occurred he he repents effectively he repents in not in inner feeling but in outward disposition does that make sense that God is unchangeable, and that's the root and the and of our hope, the grounding of our assurance that God's promises will remain, because He does not change. He's not man that He should lie, and yet, based on our actions, God effectively changes the course if we repent or not repent of our sins. So it is said that God repented up until this point where Saul disobeyed. This man, Saul, was under the, the, the favor of God. He was still effectively the king called by God and was to fulfill this calling. But because of Saul's disobedience, now God repented and he removed the, oint, uh, the anointing. He removed the blessing. He removed the favor. He's no longer to be the king and the kingdom to be given to another who is better than him isn't that how god deals with each and every one of us there was a time notwithstanding the fact that god has called us before from before the foundation of the world there is a time that we were sinners and dead in our sins and trespasses and because we repented and we know the mechanism there that it is god that gives us the repentance but because we repented god turns relents and changes his effective word towards us. He no longer looks upon us as children of wrath. He begins to look upon us as his own children, because now we've we've believed, trusted, uh, and the, uh, trusted and believed in his Son for our salvation. There is a time that we were dead, and there is a time that we are alive. And that is how God relents, or repents, or changes. In his outward disposition, and not in his inward um, emotion. So we've seen the command, we've seen the disobedience, and what that caused, and the extent of that disobedience, and what it caused to God. And quickly, and f- let's just look at the excuses and at the punishment. Firstly, the excuses. God comes to Saul. Samuel tells this to Samuel. Samuel. Uh, cries out all night. The next morning, Samuel leaves to meet with Saul early. But he is informed that Saul had gone to Carmel, that Saul was there to erect a a, a monument on his behalf. Wonderful, isn't it? Self-congratulating himself. Samuel comes to rebuke Saul, but finds that Saul is more concerned to building his own uh, uh, monument is more concerned with tooting his own horn than living obediently. It is sad, but it is the truth. A loud profession often masks an uneasy heart. And very much that is the case with Saul. And Samuel arrives then, finds him at Gilgal. Saul greets him with these words. And if you don't note the, the irony of these words, I don't know what, what, what can be more ironic here is Samuel coming to Saul to confront him with his disobedience, and there he goes. Blessed are you of the Lord, O oh Samuel. I have done everything that God commandeth. Ah, I'm so great. And yet, here comes Samuel, knowing fully well he's lying. What then is the bleating of the of the sheep? in my ears and the lowing of the oxen facts always trump the feelings oh samuel or saul always uh, feels that he's obeyed enough that he's obeyed uh, the the gist the 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 the, cur- the 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 foundation of the command he really has obeyed the 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 main part of the commandment and that's enough But facts trump feelings And the facts are that there are bleating sheep. There are lowing oxen out there. And Samuel asks, what is it? Why is it? You were not fully uh, disobedient. You were deliberately disobedient. And Saul apologizes. He excuses himself. He says, oh, it wasn't me. Isn't it interesting how sin uh, often points the finger at others, like Adam in the garden pointing the finger at Eve? Oh, it was the people. Oh, Saul, or oh, Samuel, you need to understand. It was the people. They were the ones that, that did it. It wasn't me. They were the ones, those. It's their fault. It was the people that did not obey. And by the way, look, uh, Samuel, the... the The fact of the matter is that the disobedience was for a good cause. We wanted to sacrifice the best for the Lord your God. That was why. I had good reasons to sin. No one ever says that, does they? Do they? I had good reasons to not fully go uh, through with the commandment. I had good reasons to, to reinterpret the commandment of God. Isn't that how people say it? Why is it that you've done? Or why is it that you've allowed this into the church? Or why is it that you didn't uh, do this? Or why is it that you're allowing this in your life? Well, there's a good reason, you know, pastor. There is a good reason, you know. It's because of this. It's because we want to reach this this people group. It's because we... uh, uh, This is... uh, Whatever reasons, there's always a good reason in the minds of people. And note that he says it's to the lord your god not to the lord our god but at this point with samuel or with saul at this point with saul we we kind of expect that don't we the animals were spared because we wanted to sacrifice to the lord your god and in any case it was to sacrifice to to him so uh, it's not really disobedience is it but samuel Stands up to the king. And by the way, when you think of the power balance here, one is the king who has the co- at his command 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah, and on the other side you have Samuel, seemingly alone. It takes guts and it takes courage for Samuel to stand up, for this old man to stand up to this young king, powerful king at this point in his in his kingdom it's not insignificant that many 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 of the prophets if not most if not all uh, died by the sword of their own countrymen but Samuel raises his voice and hushes the king and says be quiet and I'll tell you what the Lord God said to me I'll tell you what he said to me and the gist of it is to obey is better than to sacrifice to obey the lord is better than to sacrifice saul's fundamental error is one that is common today we declare ourselves to be obedient in any number of matters we're so obedient with this we sing this in this way we we do that in that way we use this through bible trying We obey the, w- w- we're so obedient, 99% of the time, that it's just the 1% that we uh, don't really want to obey in that regard. Whether that is with our f- church life, whether that is with our personal life, whether that is with, with, uh, with our um, purity, sexual, marital, faithfulness, church membership, worship, evangelism, uh, observance of, uh, of the Sabbath, uh, whatever case it is, we always have something. That we uh, would like to conduct ourselves not how God has told us, but how we feel like God should have told us to do. How we should be like the Noah. This afternoon we were talking about Noah. Uh, Noah is commanded, is praised for, because he obeyed in all that the Lord had commanded, and that's what the the, the Sunday school has been looking at, isn't it? Noah. And how he was so obedient. He followed the instructions of God. To the letter. And I trust me when I say this. Notwithstanding God's sovereignty. And overruling these things. But had Noah not been obedient. To obey every single instruction. Every single measurement. That God had given him. I promise you. That boat wouldn't float. That boat only floated. Because of God's omnipotent hands sustaining it samuel faced off against saul he told them he told he reminded them of his insignificance this is his punishment we've seen the the other three now his punishment samuel tells him of his disobedience of his insignificance and. Uh, that God was the source of his present high position, that he owed everything to God. He sweeps away the refuge of of his lies, the cobweb of his excuses, and, and he tells them, as it is, you've sinned and that sin that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and that stubbornness is as the iniquity and idolatry there are not many sins in scripture that are worse than the sin of witchcraft and idolatry the sin of idolatry in particular and god is uh, through samuel is saying to saul and is saying to all of us these obedience is idolatry why because you're placing yourself in the place of god and you're saying i know better than god I make up my own rules. I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my. Uh, tra- swapping those around. I know better. That's why it is idolatry. And that's why Saul is to be removed as king over Israel. That's his punishment. Ironically, he became king because of the voice of the people, wanted a king. And now he is rejected as a king because he listened to the voice of the people. Oh, he hides behind religious duty, but religious duty is not enough, is it? Because obedience, as Samuel says, is better than sacrifice. Do you think that uh, sacrifices and offerings matter more to god than obedience there are a lot in our society that do but we know better there are a lot in our society that think oh i have this pet sin but as long as i go to church every sunday as long as i uh, i uh, follow this uh, this rule as long as i go and take communion Every month, as long as I go and and give a little money and uh, perform a little ceremony and, and say a little prayer here and there, as long as that's okay, I can continue in this life of disobedience. And Samuel says, no, that's not how it works. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Because no sacrifice that we can perform no matter how big, no matter how self-giving, no matter how valuable, no sacrifice that we can make can erase the multitude, of one, uh, the multitude of one sin that we commit. Does that make sense? One sin, one stain is enough to soil the whole garment. We have more than one sin and one stain. And we too have this divine injunction, don't we? As I said, to wage holy war against, the, against sin in our lives. To put them away. And the question for me, for you, for all of us is, are we following it to the letter as, Moses, as Noah did? Following every command of God? Are we obeying it? To the best of our abilities, we always fail at the best of times, we are still men? Or are we behaving like Saul? Sparing the good ones, sparing the ones that are not completely vile. The the respectable sins in our lives. The respectful things. I'll tell you this story and I'll close. My uncle, I had an uncle, uh, had a few uncles, but uh, I had one uncle. That was, he was a very strange individual. He loved his animals more than he loved his his comforts. He, his chickens had a pen that uh, was made of brick and had electricity, and he was living in a, in a dingy uh, shack uh, with his family. That's how much he loved his animals. And he loved all kinds of weird animals. One of them in particular, and this... Um, was a sort of a, he became sort of a legend in in the family because of this is that he had a, a, a snake, not one of those snakes that you see people having these days the, the the pythons that are basically harmless. They don't they don't bite much even if they bite, just a, a few fangs. It's it does have it doesn't have any poison. Doesn't really it's not a dangerous animal to have. No, he had a, 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 snake, a wild snake that he had bre- uh, raised from, from, a, from the egg. For many years he, he kept that snake, he played around with it, he was basically domesticated. But one time he had to go on holidays and he left a lady to take care of the, f- uh, of the animals in the farm, uh, to feed the chicken, the, the pigs, to feed the, the animals. But the lady, for some reason, she dared not come close to that, uh, to that serpent's cage. So she left the, the serpent unfed for a few weeks. When my uncle returns, he goes to put his hand on the, on the cage to, to, to pet his, the, his pet snake, and the snake lunges at him. Unfortunately, it didn't kill him, didn't bite him and kill him, but, but he was so upset that he fed the snake to, to another animal in the farm. But the point is, we so often keep these pet sins, these respectable sins, in our lives. These things that God commanded us not to, to, leave, uh, to leave no stone unturned when dealing with them. And we leave them there and we think, oh, it's okay. This is, it doesn't affect anyone else. It doesn't really affect my, my walk with the Lord that much. But this story that we're reading tells us different, doesn't it? It tells us that actually it does affect our personal walk. That actually eventually sin will find us out. And that actually, eventually, sin that is unrepented of will be our undoing. Willful sin that is unrepented of is a mark that we are not really obedient And on the whole. Spare the flesh, and the flesh will get you. Or to put it in the words, as I quoted already, of, Tom, uh, of John Owen, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you don't underestimate like Saul the, the gravity of the compromises because what God tells us is that those compromises are serious and in all other things let us trust in Christ for those sins that we don't see for those many sins that we uh, are unaware of let's ask that the Lord would open our eyes let's ask that him, him himself would give us the power to put them to death and let us trust in him all the days of our life for those things that are truly good in his sight we are called not to a life of religious ritual as christians but to obedience of faith as roman says in Christ we find our salvation, our righteousness and our calling so let us live worthy of that high calling let us be obedient